Good morning, Trinity Church. So good to be here with you virtually. I'm really glad to be here. Um, my name is Adam. I'm the community director for Collector Chicago, and we are just so excited to be partnering with Trinity during this Advent season for the Advent Conspiracy. I'll be sharing a little bit about who we are and what we do during over the course of this message, and uh, but you'll be hearing more about us over the next few weeks. But I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and um, I'm just really glad to be here. Um, so thank you for your support and partnering with us. I've got a lot I want to share, so um, let me just jump in. Just real quick, though, a bit about me. I live in Uptown. Um, a fun fact is our my home church there in Missio Dei is um, also a multi-site church. We've got four locations similar to Trinity. I live there with my wife, Charity, and my son, Evergiven, who's three months old. I often get asked about Evergiven's name. Some of you may remember back in March, there was a uh, this freight ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, it was it, the wind blew it sideways. It got lodged there for like a week. It was a big deal at the time. It shut down all shipping traffic through the canal um, for about a week. Well, fast forward to August. My wife was in labor for four days, and it turned out that um, the little guy was his head was like tipped to the side. It was called asynclitic, uh, an asynclitic birth, and um, so he got a little uh, stuck in the canal, so to speak. So we named him Evergiven, and uh, he is a gift. All right, so I do want to jump in. There's a lot I want to cover today. Um, I want to start by reading um, this passage from Luke, Luke 1, 46 to 55. Um, and just for a little context, this is a, a prayer or a song that um, Mary prays. She, it's just a few days after she has received news from an angel that she's going to give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. She's told that he's going to rule over all Israel, that his kingdom will have no end. And in this situation, she's, she's visited her cousin Elizabeth, who is uh, pregnant with John the Baptist. Um, so she's processing a lot, and this is what she prays. This is Luke 1, 46 to 55. She says, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. So I, I love this prayer. It's such an incredibly powerful prayer. Um, and let's just a quick reminder about where Mary's coming from in this situation, right? So she just found out that she's um, that she's pregnant. She's a poor teenager. Um, she's pregnant out of wedlock, and at this point, she's probably afraid that her fiance is going to leave her. We know from Matthew's gospel that Joseph—that is what Joseph was planning on doing when he first found out she was pregnant. He was planning on leaving her. So she's facing this pregnancy potentially alone, and. Um, even in our modern day, um, I mean, my wife can attest that even a perfectly healthy, normal pregnancy can be a scary thing. And add on top of that, um, these these other factors, the fact that she's um, she's still unmarried, which at this time would have been an even greater social stigma than it is today, and even more challenging financially at that time, as um, women's labor at the time was was worth was not worth as much as it is now. She's facing a lot of challenges here, and um, it's a very scary situation for her to be in, potentially. And it, in the midst of this, in the midst of this incredibly daunting situation, she worships, right? She praises God. And it's an incredibly powerful, 
powerful prayer that she prays. We might be familiar with the, the phrase at the beginning. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Um, that's, a, that's a famous phrase from this prayer. But then she goes on, and the second half is, is uh, often overlooked. She says, his mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. The more I read Luke, the more I am convinced that it is the gospel of the oppressed and the marginalized. I feel like Luke, more than any other gospel writer, really, his eye is for the one who is on the outside, the outcast, the leper, the prostitute, the one who is rejected, the one who is broken and alone. We see this over and over through his gospel. Um, even right from the beginning here, we see um, him telling these two birth stories of Jesus and John the Baptist. Um, we get them both from the women's perspective, from Mary and Elizabeth's perspective, which is very unusual for the Gospels. And further on in the Gospel, Luke is the only one to include the um, parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, he's the only one to include the story of the prodigal son. Um, he's the only one to include the story of the, the one lost sheep and the 99, where the shepherd goes after the one. He's the only one to tell the story of the, the 10 lepers that Jesus heals, and then only the one Samaritan leper comes back and thanks Jesus. I see this pattern over and over through Luke, and I really feel that Luke, Luke gets this topsy-turvy nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus describes. And the way we hear Luke tell it, in the kingdom of God, the people who are seated in the places of honor are the women and children and tax collectors and prostitutes, um, the, the rejects of society. And the people who are left out in the cold are the powerful and the rich and the famous. And that's what I love about this prayer for Mary is she gets this. And I feel like she captures all of that so well right here at the beginning of Luke and sets the tone for the rest of the gospel. And she celebrates this fact that God is, reverses these power structures that um, are natural to humankind. And why she celebrates this is she, we see her identifying with the powerless. She says right at the beginning, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. So she identifies herself as someone who is disgraced. She's in a low position, um, and she understands her relation to God. And then she says, and he has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He's brought down princes. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. So Mary is celebrating this pattern that God does, where he scatters the proud and exalts the humble because she is disgraced. And God has seen her in the midst of her disgrace and honors her and says that she is, um, she is to be celebrated. She is in a, in a high position. I want to share a bit about the background of the Collective Chicago, and you'll see how this ties in. We, for me, Collective Chicago really got started um, when I moved to Chicago back in 2016, um, I moved here to Uptown um, from, uh, from Montana, where I grew up. I was coming from a, a fairly sheltered background, um, and so moving to Uptown was very unfamiliar to me. I was exposed to um, levels of poverty and homelessness that I hadn't, hadn't really been exposed to before on such a close level. And in fact, in Uptown at the time, and, and still to this day, there's a, a, a large tent encampment there, one of the larger ones. In, in Chicago. Um, underneath Lakeshore Drive, a couple of, there's a couple of overpasses that are sort of linked, one over um, Wilson Avenue, one uh, over Lawrence Avenue. And between those two overpasses, there were probably about 40 or 50 people there at the time when I moved there, staying in tents. I started hanging out there. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing there at first. I just sort of um, would show up after work sometimes. 
listen to Cubs games on the radio with people. Sometimes I bring food. Sometimes just hang out. Sometimes look for opportunities for spiritual conversations. And it was really out of a mix of motives, I would say. Um, there was a, a part of me that I think felt some guilt from my own relative position of privilege. A part of me that was just curious. I was unfamiliar with this this kind of living. I think there was an element of love too in it that I cared for these people and wanted to help. And with that wanting to help came an element of a savior complex, I would say too. There's a part of my motives that were, you know, that thought I could fix things and, and wanted to fix things. And so before long, um, my friend Dan and I, my roommate at the time, started um, hosting a couple friends of ours from time to time on, um, on our couch uh, for periods of time, the guys that we had met in the streets. And during this time of about a year, I started to really come to grips with how my approach and my mentality towards this community was very toxic and unbiblical. I was entering into this homeless community really with this standard framework that I saw in myself and in a lot of homeless out, outreach ministries of, um, I have the resources, you have the needs. And what that mentality did was it really created this sort of one-way transactional relationship between me and the residents of Tent City. In a lot of ways, it dehumanized both the receiver of the, of the, of the gift and myself. It kind of objectified um, my neighbors there as, as objects of poverty or um, as uh, projects to be worked on rather than as individuals, as friends. And so it, it was, I was creating these relationships often starting out with a, with a transaction, with an exchange of resources rather than an exchange of time as, as most friendships start. Um, and I was reinforcing this power disparity where that tended to reinforce my own savior complex and for some of my friends there may have reinforced their own poverty of community and poverty of identity. There's a Dutch priest and author who I love, Henry Nouwen. Um, he said, we will never believe that we have anything to give unless there is someone who is able to receive. And at this time, I was not open to receiving from the community there um, because I had in my head that I was supposed to be the one to give. And I realized at this time that I needed to take a step back from trying to be a host, trying to fix things, trying to help, and I needed to learn how to be a guest in this space. So I went to, the, there was a mayor of Tent City, his name's Tom, I went to him and asked him if there was room for me. I went and talked to some of my other friends there, and, um, and everyone was very welcoming and happy to have me. So I, I moved into a tent there for about seven months um, in 2017, up until we got kicked out by the city they, under the pretense of trying to do some reconstruction on the bridge, even though no repairs were ever done to the, bri done to the bridge. Just to be clear, my intent in um, living in that space was not to try to understand what it's like to be homeless. At the end of the day, my experience was nothing like my neighbors there under the bridge. Um, I have so many safety nets and options. I have friends and family that would take me in if I wanted to. So I would never compare my experience to my neighbors there. My goal there was simply to figure out how to restore a sense of mutuality and dignity to my friendships with my neighbors there and hope to kind of, after moving out, to reassume some of the symptoms of my power and privilege in a more healthy way and use them for, for the good of my neighbors. What I realized was I was looking for the kingdom in all the wrong places. Initially, I thought that I was, could bring the gospel to this homeless encampment. And um, what I quickly realized was that my calling was not to bring the gospel, but to enter into the work that God was already doing there. I wasn't bringing God there. God had already showed up. He was there. And my role was to enter into his work that he was already doing. I quickly found out that most of the people there are already believers. 
um, and a much higher ratio of the homeless community are believers than um, housed community. One of the um, Christian women that I met there, Diane, she ended up uh, standing with me in my wedding last year, in my wedding party, and um, she's just a powerful woman of God, and she runs a Bible study now, and she's brought more people to our church. She goes to Missio Day as well now in my church, and um, she's brought more people to our church than anyone else I know by far. Before entering the homeless community, I had a lot of unrecognized assumptions, um, assumptions sometimes that uh, maybe I was a better decision maker or maybe a better judge of character um, because of my position of relative privilege. What I quickly realized during studying scripture during this time period, um, that over and over in scripture, wealth and privilege, especially in the Gospel of Luke, are presented as obstacles to knowing God and not assets in the kingdom. We see it over and over. Jesus talked a lot about money uh, in his ministry, and mostly it was about getting rid of it. Um, we see, I think, of stories of the, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and Jesus said to sell all he had and give to the poor. Um, I think of Zacchaeus, who, um, who received that message and, and received the kingdom. I think of you know, Jesus' analogy of the camel and the eye of the needle, and this pattern over and over that we see that wealth is not an asset in the kingdom of God, but a liability, something that hinders us from, from true communion with God, um, or at least has that potential. And I think it makes sense. We think about when I think about what is the kingdom of God, right? Who is it for? Um, what is it like? We know from, for example, in the Beatitudes um, that the kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. Um, the kingdom of God is for the persecuted. The kingdom of God is also for, the, for children, we know. Um, we think of when the children came to Jesus and he said, let them come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. And when I think about what does that mean? What is it to be a child? Um, among other things, it's one of the things it is is certainly dependence on your parents, right? To be a child is to be dependent on our Father for our daily bread. When I think about who in my life has the best insight, who has the most profound wisdom on what it is to depend on our Father for our daily bread, it's friends of mine from under the bridge, friends like Diane who um, have lived without housing, lived without consistent income, and had to depend on God for, for their meals. And we see this pattern in Matthew 25, too, where there's a story Jesus is describing when God in the new heavens and new earth is separating the righteous from the unrighteous. And he says to the righteous, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. What struck me during this time period in 2017 about that passage was that the picture of Christ there is not the person giving the cup of water. It's the person receiving the cup of water. The picture of Christ given to us is not the giver, but the receiver. And the same is true in the nativity, in the, in the birth story of Jesus. Um, the picture of Christ that's given to us is not the, the wise king who comes from afar with his gifts of gold. The picture of Christ is the baby in the manger. It's a picture of poverty and, and vulnerability and helplessness. The people that were there at Jesus' birth that were honored were shepherd boys, you know, poor, poor children who the angels appeared to. It's this teenage girl that gave birth to Jesus. Um, those are the ones in the story that are elevated and honored. That's where we look for, to see the kingdom of God. Over and over, this pattern is, he has scattered the proud and exalted the humble. So after um, the, we got cleared out from under the bridge, uh, my friend Dan pitched to me this idea for a nonprofit, Collective Chicago. The idea was that it would be a transitional housing space for young men experiencing homelessness, and it would be a space founded on this principle of mutuality, a space where staff would live uh, in the same space as the transitional residents, as permanent residents, where we would um, live, eat, and work alongside the transitional residents, where all residents would be afforded a sense of, of dignity and belonging 
through just mutual community, through an exchange of, of time and uh, meals. For the last three years, that, uh, that dream has been a reality. We started out just in our two-bedroom apartment. Last year, we acquired a four-flat building, which we're currently renovating. Um, but guys move in with us for about six to 12 months. We work with them on finding full-time employment, um, building budgeting skills, cooking skills. We have out-of-house partners to connect everyone, including Dan and I, to mental health therapy. Um, we have gyms for physical fitness. And of course, we share regular meals together as a house. Um, and everything that we do is built on this principle of mutuality. The whole house is involved in the interview process for new residents. Everyone, once they have income, contributes a portion of their income to helping run the house. Again, to foster that sense of, of belonging and, and ownership of the community. For those that work in social services, we also try to employ best practices in the field. We're a housing-first model that is trauma-informed and strength-based. And so far, it's been, it's been really a joy. We've had five graduates um, move out into permanent housing so far with full-time employment, and we're really excited about this new building. Uh, once the renovations are done, my wife and I and son will move back in there, and we'll have room for seven new transitional residents. And we really believe that this model is something that not only works to transition young men out of homelessness, but it's something that embraces this pattern that Luke describes of honoring the humble, of where everyone who walks through our doors is, is held in high esteem and is seen as, uh, as, a, as a friend, as a mutual, as an equal. I wanted to leave you with one image that I brought. Um, before I uh, met my wife, she was living in an intentional Christian community in Uptown uh, called Jesus People USA. They celebrate Advent every year with a number of pieces of artwork. Um, and one of the pieces of art that they do is they set up a nativity scene. And it's a um, very unique nativity scene. They set it up behind their building in an alleyway, behind a couple of dumpsters, between a couple of dumpsters. They build it out of uh, scraps of old lumber, trash, cardboard. Yeah, I, I love this image. They've been doing it for the last few years. I feel like it's such a powerful image because it captures for me what the coming of Christ is like. This is where we look for the kingdom of God. The, the coming of Christ was messy, right? Christ was born in a stable to a single mom. Um, he was born like he died in the midst of blood and water and pain. These are the kinds of places um, where the, the kingdom shows up. The kind of people that, um, that make up the kingdom of God, that hold the places of honor, are the kinds of people that sleep in places like this. I think that to find the kingdom, we must look in low places. We look among the rejected um, from, of society. And I think it's there that we discover our own poverty, our own brokenness, um, and our own need for a savior. There's a quote that I love from Jean Vanier, who has uh, founded um, some communities called the Large Communities in France. They're um, spaces for the disabled, also built on this principle of mutuality. And he said, people may come to our communities because they want to serve the poor. They will only stay once they have discovered that they themselves are the poor. And then they discover something extraordinary, that Jesus came to bring the good news to the poor, not to those who serve the poor. So this Advent, we worship fully with Mary, celebrating that God scatters the proud and exalts the humble. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who uses your power on behalf of the powerless, that you are a God that sees the disgraced and elevates them. You are a God that um, sees the suffering of this world, and you are not far from it. You are close. Um, God, I pray over Collective Chicago and Trinity in this Advent season. I pray that you would just fill us with um, 
a sense of anticipation for your coming, and a deep sense of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.